only in Jeff Styles America. Hello, folks. Welcome once again to Old El Jefe's Storyville. Trip to Storyville with El Jefe Jeff Styles, Nuga's own Jeff Styles. And during Storyville, what we do is we, that's me, El Jefe Jeff Styles with a Y, thank you very much, and my friend, the Argonaut here, we take a trip back into my own past. I just kind of tell you a little bit about things that I have seen and heard and experienced and suffered and enjoyed in my own past. And speaking of suffering, boy, this last couple of weeks has really been something. Last few days has really been something. Um, I know in podcasts, because you can listen to them at any time, I'm not supposed to be time specific, but wowsy, wowsy, woo, woo, to quote some cartoon character from back in the 70s. Um, it has really been crazy times, crazy times. Uh, America has been in an uproar here recently. Um, we have had uh, pandemics, of course, here in our neck of the woods. Here recently we had some tornadoes. But uh, nationally, from sea to shining sea, actually it's even poured out into other cities. We've had riots, demonstrations uh, turning into riots and cities on fire that uh, this has eclipsed the the days of rage of 1968 because of the death of a man in Minneapolis at the hands of police, uh, George Floyd. And the place has just erupted and it's still going on. And uh, I'm not going to get into the politics of it. Let's just say I empathize with everybody who is suffering and, and feeling outrage and remorse and just the need to lash out. Uh, it's gotten really, really crazy, though, and scary out there. And uh, it's just out of control. And it's uh, these are just very bizarre and absurd times to live in. And some people are handling, handling it very well, and some people are not. And I'm just going to spend just a few minutes here in complete and total escapism. This is what I would have been doing at this time in this podcast anyway, but this is my own personal escapism, and I want to invite you to join me for just a little bit. I'm going to go back to one of the most perfect, and I do mean this. This is not some golden haze of nostalgia that I'm evoking here. Um, this was just a perfect time in my life. Forty years ago, coming up in just a few days, 40 years ago, on June 9th, I will be exact, 1980, three friends and myself, that's not the correct English, me and three friends took off from our little hometown of Bowden, Georgia, population 1,300 friendly people and a couple of old grumps. It was in the middle of my college career. I took a summer quarter off. We were on quarters, not semesters. And we took off and we decided to drive across the country. We took off to discover, to find America and find ourselves. My friends were Steve and Jim and Brian. And we planned this trip meticulously. Uh, we had our parents' permission. We had one of our parents' cars, as a matter of fact, and a little Apache camper uh, that we got from one of my dad's friends up in Ohio. Actually, we got the camper from Virginia. That's a long story. We'll tell that later. Um, I'm going to encapsulate the story today because the next couple of weeks here on Storyville, I'm going to get into more detail on some of the adventures that we had on this trip. I'm going to kind of roll it into a bundle today. 
because I need to get away from the here and now and go back to that summer because we spent the entire summer on the road. We never slept in a bed. It was our desire to hit as many states, as many national parks as possible. These were my outdoor buddies. These were my camping and hunting and fishing buddies. These were not my party friends. I had two sets of friends. Sometimes the two crossed paths, but very rarely. As a matter of fact, I had to swear, a mighty swear. I had to take my woodsman's oath, take my woodsman's promise and oath that I would not smoke dope while I was on this trip. None of them did. You know, we drank a few beers, but that was few and far between. Um, So we were going to spend as much time as we could in the outdoors, which was 100% of the time, as it turned out. Never slept in a bed the entire summer. And we made our way from Bowden, Georgia, all the way across the country, up into British Columbia, almost up into Alaska, down the entire West Coast, crisscross all the great national parks, Yosemite, Yellowstone, Zion, Bryce, down the West Coast, shot back across into Texas, down into Mexico, made our way down into New Orleans. It was our plan to go down into the Keys and then back home. Something happened when we got into New Orleans and we ended up having to go home a little early. Didn't sleep in a bed one time. The encapsulated story coming up in just a second. Let me say thank you very much to my employers, Nuga Radio, NugaRadio.com. How about a shout out to them? We don't do that very often. We really don't. No, we don't. That's where I work in the morning doing morning talk radio. NugaRadio.com. Check it out. We do streaming audio and Facebook Live and all that stuff. Stuttering audio. Stuttering audio. That's actually a much better description, as a matter of fact. McMahon Law Firm, McMahon Law Firm, The Insiders, 265-1100. If you have any problem with anybody, especially an insurance company, talk to The Insiders, McMahon Law Firm. Tell them I sent you, El Jefe sent you. Um, RC2 Realty, RC2 Realty, my friend Robin Ring will hook you up if you have any kind of distressed property and you'd like to take it from crappy to happy, she'll do that for you. Uh, to Norspring, Norspring takes care of you in all kinds of different ways, massage therapy, acupuncture, but especially the cryotherapy that they have down there. They will, the, freeze, you. They will freeze your problems and you'll come out a much better person. And to RMJ USA, they have tactical tools and historically accurate antique weapons. Just go to their website, rmjusa.com, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Incredibly cool, incredibly cool. As a matter of fact, if me and my buddies had had some RMJ tools when we went on this trip, we would have gotten into much more trouble and had much more fun. I do believe this to be the case. Um, We took off on June 9th, 1980, and our parents and girlfriends, still just girlfriends at that time, were all gathered up at one of the friend's parents' farms, and they had a big going-away party for us. And as we pulled away, there were tears in everybody's eyes, not ours. <laughs> Are you kidding, man? We were getting ready to go off in this adventure of a lifetime. We were just glad to be pulling away and putting that place in the rearview mirror. This was our hometown. I had lived elsewhere. The other three guys had never lived anywhere else. And we're going to go off and see this great big country. And we're going, hee, hee, see you losers later, you know. But everybody else was crying, and they, were, they weren't worried. They, didn't, they said they weren't worried, but we know they were worried you know, to death. And, and the girls were all weeping, thinking we're going to go off and meet these crazy chicks in California. They were right. Um, but, you know, we took off and on this great adventure. It was a special moment. It really was. And, and here I'm going to bring in Argonaut at least twice in this brief encapsulation. Uh, the first place we stopped to sleep was right outside of Nashville. And 
I'd never been to Nashville. And of course, we're doing this live from Chattanooga, Tennessee. And all I can remember, Argonaut, was that we were somewhere just off of the interstate. And we had pulled off and just a rest stop, which we became very fond of doing, and just basically just took cat naps. And we were somewhere high, and we were looking over the lights of the city. And now for the life of me, I can't remember where that would have been. Monteagle? But we were looking over the lights of the city. Uh, the city. And we were looking over the lights of Nashville. Where do you think that would have been? Now that I actually know the area, I don't know where we would have been if it would have been in 24 or 40. But I just remember just pulling over at, at some sort of... It might not have even been a rest stop. It could have just been a, just a pullover somewhere. We might have just thrown our sleeping bags on the ground, which we, we became fond of doing, but we could see the shimmering lights of Nashville out there somewhere. Maybe like Smyrna? I don't know. I honestly don't know. Maybe the interstate system has even changed well, since it's then. It's changed in the past 60 years. Yeah, 40, 40 years. Come on now. I was just 19 40 in 1980, years. in June of 1980. I mean, that area's changed, though, in 40 years. That's true. That's true. Well, I actually, for years and years, I had a big, you know, atlas. Do you know what an atlas is? Yeah, all right, good. I had an atlas that had our, you know, detailed route on it. And this says a lot. We were in such a state of mind. We didn't actually have a planned route. And we we marked where we had been, not where we were going. And we went back and looked. We actually went backwards several times. We did loop-de-loops. If we liked a place, we'd make up our mind a day later and say, let's go back. And we would go back. And so we actually did loops backwards. We didn't have anything marked as to where we wanted to go. We just marked where we had been. Think about that for a little bit. Well, you know me. You know I would do that. But we had four guys. Each guy picked one place where we had to go, and the other three couldn't veto it. I picked San Francisco. The other three guys picked places out in the middle of nowhere. We'll talk more about that later. Anyway, first night in Nashville, we continued on. We went through St. Louis. The only reason I'm going to mention St. Louis is because the arch. I would have thought the arch would mean nothing. The most boring monument in the world. Just a great big arch. How, how, how incredible could that be? Did you go inside? No. Oh. No, it was, it was not operative at the time. It was down for repairs. But it made such an impression on me. I mean, I really was thinking nothing. I, I was going to nap through St. Louis. And I woke up and looked at it. And I got out and went up and put my hand on it. And that night, I had a dream. It wasn't really a nightmare. I guess you could call it that. But I had a dream that I was on top of the arch. I was on top of the arch in the wind. And it was a daytime. And I kept walking to the edge. I was going, how am I going to get down? I kept thinking, well, I can slide down. And I'd start to slide down. No, no, you can't slide down this thing. And I'd go to the other side. I'd say, you can't. And I was like, well, maybe I can slide. And I'd go, no, it'll just be fall. You'll fall. You'll fall. And I was just trapped at the top of the arch. And I woke up at some point, maybe it was a nightmare, but I mean, it drilled itself into my brain very deeply into my subconsciousness. If you get the chance to go back. And I've been back once since. Take the tour. I, I know I should. 
And when we went back, I went back with my wife, Rebecca, and they warned us against going down there at night. They said it had gotten very dangerous. I mean, literally, the hotel and even the uh, the little touristy guards down there, they rode segways. How uncool is that? But they said, don't go down there. They warned us away from going to the area's biggest tourist attraction. Isn't that weird? Sad. But then after that, we headed out toward the Rockies. And one of the cool things on the trip, the things that all three of us, all four of us, excuse me, would remember as, as one of the moments on the trip. Again, and keep in mind, I mean, we were driving. When we were driving, we would start putting our shoes on when we were three hours out from someplace. That's what we, we got used to. I mean, because we would take turns driving, and we're in this huge big boat of a car with this trailer behind us. And I said it was a camper, but we actually pulled all the fabric out of the camper, and then it was a pop-up, this little patchy. But really what it had become was a trailer. It just had all our gear in it. And so we were constantly moving until we were not. And so when we were three hours away from someplace, we literally started getting ready. We just got used to constantly being moving until we weren't. And when we started approaching the Rockies, first of all, Kansas, you can have it. East Colorado, just like Kansas. Flat and boring as all get out. There are some stories to be told, and I'll do that later on. But you start seeing this low-lying cloud on the horizon. You think, oh, hell, here comes a storm. Man, we're driving into the teeth of a storm. And then you start looking at you going, "Ah, is that? No, it can't be. I know that we're not the first people to ever have this phenomenon Trust me, I know that we were not the first people to ever experience this, but like, that can't be the mountain range. There's no way that's the mountain range. No, that's got to be a, this, those are clouds, right? And then finally it dawns on you, it really does hit you, my God, that's the mountain range. And the Rockies rise up from the plains like a wall. That's the reason Denver is there. The early settlers, the pioneers, they're out there in their Conestoga wagons, do 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 you know, and they're like going, oh, look at there, Pa, what the hell, is that, is that a cloud, is that, there's a mountain, boom, and the mule just hits the damn mountain, like hitting a wall, and they go, I believe we'll stay right here, <laughs> screw that, and you know, and that's the way it is, I mean, you literally just feel like you could just go up to the first mountain and just go, boom, and just put your head up against it. That's how immediately they just jut up from the plains. And uh, so sure enough, we get into, the, into, the, into the, the eastern slope of the Rockies. And after that approach, two things I'll say real quick about the Rockies. Remember, this is the quick encapsulation. This is an entire summer I'm throwing at you in half an hour. Um, I had my first ever peak experience without drugs. I completely just as sober and straight as I could be. When we got up to the Continental Divide, I we constantly were going off on our own separate little adventures, adventures with all four of us, with three, with two, and solo adventures as well. We each did our own little thing. So I'm up on the Continental Divide. If you don't know what that is in the Rockies, that's where essentially all the water that pours down onto the top of the range, if it flows to the west, it flows into the Pacific. If it, Pacific. If it flows to the east, it flows into the Atlantic, right? So we jokingly talked about how if you peed right there and split, you'd be peeing into the Pacific, into the Atlantic. And what wasn't that funny? <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? But I mean, I'm up there by myself on this particular 
little peak had no name as far as I know. And there was this one little bent, gnarled, twisted tree that had just been weather-beaten. I have no idea how old it would have been. It couldn't have gotten very large up there. It might have been hundreds of years old as far as I know. And it was just me and the wind. And very much like the desert does to you, that peak on that rocky slope, it just suddenly just peeled away the facade of civilization and all of the trappings that I thought were me. The the elementary school, the high school, the college, the girls, the parents, and everything. And it was just me and the rock and the sky and the wind. And I just felt like I just became elemental. And I know this sounds all kinds of psychological and deep, and and it was. It, It was a peak experience without any aid of any sort of drugs or hallucinogenics or anything like that. And I was, in those few short moments, absolutely at one with God and the universe. And it was the first absolute natural high I could think of at that level that I'd ever experienced. I mean, I'd had moments in sports and, and, and yeah, with, with girls and things of this nature in the ocean, just enjoying myself that were just wonderful moments of adrenaline, but nothing like that. It was as religious experience and experiences I'd ever had before or really since. It was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. And I don't think you can get anything like that outside of nature, pure and simple. So from the absolutely beautiful and transcendent to the absurd. The other thing that happened in the Rockies that I'll just throw out here right now that has to be mentioned, my friend Brian. um, Of the four of us, Brian is the only one who's no longer with us. He passed a few years ago, and they're all special. All three of these guys are wonderful, wonderful human beings. Brian was my, my earliest childhood friend, my best childhood friend, and he was a unique individual. And when we were <laughs> up in the Rockies, there was a particular, we were on the back slope at this point. We were in the Yellowstone area. And uh, so actually, I guess that's that's not really true. We weren't in the Yellowstone area because that would have been Wyoming, wouldn't it? But we were just in this area. And uh, he had gone off on his own solo adventure. And uh, me and one of the other guys, it was Jim, I believe, we were just sitting up. And we had lost track of him. We were just sitting up on this rocky ledge. And all of a sudden, we saw him way across this distance, this little high grassy field. And we saw as just he had this cap on, this little yellow Napa hat. You know what a Napa hat looks like? That yellow, acrid, mustard, yellow cap. And so he just stood out. And he was just bobbing up and down. He was way the way over there. And Jim, a birder, an ornithologist, he had a pair of field glasses, of course, What's he doing? What's he doing? So we started watching him, taking turns, and it was just kind of funny. We were just being voyeuristic, just watching our buddy just bob around over there. And we started really intensely started eavesdropping on him because he thought he was totally by himself. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at him through the field glasses, and he drops his pack. He looks this way. He looks that way. He's being all stealthy. And all of a sudden, I realize what he's doing, and he drops his pants. (laughs) He starts taking a dump. He starts taking a dump behind this bush, and he's, he's, he has looked for the perfect bush with the perfect leaves, and he's reaching around, and he, 
He's wiping himself, and he's he looks at it and throws it down. Yes, he's he's looking at it. And which, I don't know what Freud. I don't know what Freud said about the people who looked. I really don't. I don't know if what you're supposed to do, look at it or not look at it. But he took a rock and put it on top of it. He pulled his pants back up. And later that, that okay? and later that night, later that night, he was diabetic. Maybe he was supposed to. I don't know. Like I don't know. I don't later that night, the campfire. Me and Jim just waited for the perfect moment. He said, "How's that BM? How's that BM, Brian?" He goes, "What? How's that BM you took today?" He just looked at us like, "So yeah, you know that one you took behind the bush there, man? Did that work out for you? Everything come out okay?" <laughs> oh my gosh. He just was wondering how in the world did they know it? We we kept him we guessing for a little while there. I mean, how could there was nobody? There was nobody for miles around, right? Oh, I'm sorry. I know that's completely childish, completely childish. I shouldn't speak ill of the dead, but that was so funny. It probably wasn't worth the time it took to use up your podcast time here, but I just had to throw that in there. Oh my God! So. From, from there, we continued, 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 continued. We ended up out at Mount St. Helens. It was only, a, what, about three or four weeks ago, the 40th anniversary of the explosion of Mount St. Helens. And uh, so it had just happened right before we left, essentially. And we did make our way out to Mount St. Helens, and it was a moonscape. I cannot describe to you really to any degree and detail uh, accurately what it was like. I mean, it was the area. You couldn't actually approach the mountain, but the area around it, was completely gray. It was gray on gray on gray on gray. And there were actually state parks that were open and campgrounds that were open, but you had to be a fool to camp there. So we did, of course. And everything, it was just covered with this fine gray dust, silt, really. And every time you took a step, this powdery silt would just float up. Um, we actually tried to throw a disc, a frisbee, uh, once, and it like it just it just clipped a tree limb, and this puff of gray went into the air and hung there forever. And we realized we were breathing this stuff everywhere. Every movement just sent this stuff up into the air. We thought, well, this probably isn't very good for us. So we uh, actually we hung out for a little bit. We kind of messed around with trying to make a camp, and we just ended up in this big puff cloud, like we'd stepped on one of those little uh, mushroom balls, you know, and we were just breathing spores. So we hung out for a little bit and ended up taking a few pictures and leaving. It was it was an interesting moment to be there, but, but not exactly picturesque. It, it burned its way into my memory, that's for sure. Um, then we made our way on down the West Coast. Many stories to be told there. I'll save most of them for later. Obviously, made my way to San Francisco. That was my choice. And it was special. Uh, among the many things that have burned here over the last few days was the Fisherman's Wharf at San Francisco. And, you know, San Francisco, I, I don't know how they fared in 68. They have not been one of the major hot spots in all these recent days of rioting, not as much as uh, as L.A. has been, or even San Diego, or San Jose, or Santa Monica. Think about it. the most chill riot of all time 
seriously was yesterday at Santa Monica, the most chill riot you've ever seen, but it still involved rubber bullets and batons and National Guard. It was a pretty chill riot in Santa Monica, but it still did lots of damage and looting. Crazy times, but Fisherman's Wharf went up in flames. That was one of the main stories I was going to tell, but I'll save that one for later. Uh, let me say thanks again to all of you folks for listening to Storyville and also the other podcast that I and the Argonaut do, the Argonaut and me, myself, I, the Argonaut, that we do. Yes. Here at fredpodcast.com. Fredpodcast.com. We do Storyville and we do Rockyology. The one I do all the heavy lifting of. Yes, thank you very much. Rockyology is an hour-long podcast where we get into deeper cuts on classic rock albums and the one we're, we're going to do next, actually we're probably going to do it tomorrow, is going to be about progressive rock. Talk about prog rock. Prog rock. We're going to get proggy. We're going to get all proggy on it. And, and, of course, all of them are archived. And it's talk about escapism. Nothing's better than prog rock for escapism. So, anyway, that's what we're going to do. So probably go to someplace in San Francisco tomorrow, too. But thank you very much for listening to fredpodcast.com. Please spread the word about these podcasts. If you will tell five of your friends about Storyville and Rockyology, they can tell five of their friends. They can tell five of their friends. Next thing you know, we're selling Herbalife and Amway, and we take over the freaking world. Let's just get real. Yeah. If they're bad, they'll tell five of their friends. I'll make it as bad as I need to. If it's good, they won't tell anybody. What? I'll start sucking even worse then. And if they would tell at least one of their friends. We can take over the world, people, and then we won't have riots. I'll run this place right, especially if you give us some money. You subscribe because you can't run the world without money. So subscribe, please. Please do. Because yeah, we don't have any of that. None. No I mean, monies. zip, zilch, nada. We're zero money. So here we go. Um, thank you very much to McMahon Law Firm, The Insiders, Nuga Radio, the folks who employ us and let us do this sort of thing, RC2 Realty, Norspring, RMJ USA. Very quickly, I will wrap this thing up. We go to Texas eventually. End up spending the 4th of July in Mexico. Of course. What else are you going to do on the 4th of July? We were trying to get to Austin for Willie Nelson's big barbecue that he did every year on the 4th of July. Somehow we end up over in Ciudad Juarez, Jimenez, I don't know, wherever it was. Someplace, someplace very dangerous. Some, some state in Mexico for the 4th of July. One of the most miserable times of my entire life. I ended up that night in the trailer, in the Apache, with it closed, driving across the Texas night. I wasn't driving. I was riding, praying to a black velvet Jesus painting. That story is coming up, too, and that will be an entire podca podcast in and of itself. The Black Velvet Jesus painting is still hanging on the wall of my friend Steve's house. There is no exaggeration here. Let's just say it was the hottest, 
summer on record, the summer of 1980. Look it up right now. Go ahead. Get on your phone and Google it. The summer of 1980, the roads were exploding like they had dynamite under them. I could no longer stand to be in the car with these sweaty beasts that were my friends. And I decided I had to get out in the middle of the night and I had to stretch out. And I said, I'm going to get in the back of the trailer. And that day, on the 4th of July, my friend had purchased a black velvet Jesus painting and put it in the back. And I made me a little bitty cot back there. And by the time I laid down, I said, oh, this is going to be great. And he started the car. I realized I'd made a terrible mistake. And the guy that got behind the wheel was Steve, who was an 18-wheeler, long-haul trucker. And he took off across the flatlands of Texas and there was no way to tell him what a mistake I'd made. And I was praying to the black velvet Jesus to let me out. That story's coming up. It's very real. I was very serious. The black velvet Jesus delivered me. I kind of want to hear it now. No, I, I, I don't have the time to tell it now. The black velvet Jesus delivered me, brothers and sisters. I'm, we made our way to New Orleans. And remember, I said we were going to go from New Orleans down to the Keys. And uh, the only thing I'm going to say about New Orleans is this. That was my first. Remember, I'm 19 years old. I thought I was a man of the world, but apparently I was not. New Orleans is a fun place, as Jason, the Argonaut, knows. His favorite place. Yes. He plans on moving there. Yes. It was my first experience. Please do not take offense at this. Don't take offense to this. I have no prejudice in my heart, no bias at all. To each his own, everybody, God bless you, love is love. At the time, we called them deceptors, men who dressed as women. I, the entire concept was unclear to me. I had been raised in a tiny town in Ohio, and then I moved to a tiny town in Georgia, I really didn't even know really things like this existed outside of fiction and strange books and movies. I had just never really run into this in reality. And being young and very in shape, thin, tall, and uh, the required dress of the day was cut off jeans, very short cut-off jeans, high-topped athletic socks, tennis shoes, no shirt. That's the way we essentially dressed all the time. That's the way I was dressed then, 6'3", about 170 pounds of lean muscle, very tan, blonde hair, white blonde hair, and uh, greased up. And I go marching through New Orleans downtown in the middle of the afternoon. And I'm walking around. And back then you could buy beer at 18. And I come to a place that the upper deck is filled with beautiful girls. It's about 2 o'clock, I guess, in the afternoon at this point, And these girls are hooping and hollering at me. And they're pretty. And they're saying, come on in, come on in. And the place is called Gunga Dens. Gunga Dens. I'm going, well, I know where I'm going for the rest of the day. 
So I go marching in. They're on the upper deck. I go marching in the, the downstairs door, and there's a beautiful woman at the door beckoning me in. And I go in, and I march into the bar, and I order me up a beer and a shot. Boom, down goes the shot. Here come a couple of girls walking over to me. I start drinking the beer, and they're chatting me up, and I'm chatting them up. The place is full of nothing but girls. It's me and girls everywhere. And I am the, I'm the master of the universe. I'm the king of the world. I'm going to score here. I'm going to pull a train of New Orleans girls. It's going to be my day, my night. I might not ever leave Gunga Dens. And then it hits me. In my primitive, small-town Georgia brain, these aren't girls at all. These are dudes. And now I've got about six of them surrounding me. Some of them are taller than me. One of them has a little stubble poking through his pancake makeup. One of them's got biceps decidedly larger than me. They're beginning to kind of press in a little bit. I'm drinking my beer now. One of them's drinking their beer, and I'm watching the Adam's apple go up and down. These aren't girls at all, dude. Dudes. Dude, you better get out of here, dude. You're surrounded by dude, dude. I don't really remember what I said. They clearly saw the look on my face. Me being dressed the way I was with nothing but a pair of... Con- I mean, the pockets of, of my cut-off denim shorts extended past where the denim was cut off. That's how short they were. That's how short they were. I have pictures of us on that trip, and my wife... Looks at them and goes, Jesus, God, Jeff. I mean, you look like you're in gay 70s porn. So they must have assumed that I knew what I was doing when I came in there. I didn't. I mean, I looked like I was in the village people. And I don't remember what I said, but I made my way delicately out. I wasn't one of those guys that was going to freak out. But I did get out. I extricated myself from the situation and uh, walked quickly down the alleyway. It was now 2.45-ish in the afternoon. I was literally, I had, I'd been presented with a situation I didn't even know existed in this universe. I didn't know how I was going to explain it. I knew I had to be honest with my friends, and that's when it happened. My friend Brian came around the corner, and he had a look on his face, I didn't have to explain it anytime soon because he informed me that his grandmother had just had a heart attack and we had to go home. So we didn't make it to the Keys at all. We actually had to find the other two guys and we piled in the car and we took off and we got back to Bowden in about seven and a half to eight hours. So it was, uh, it took a little longer than that. Um, it was late at night. And we made a couple of stops. And I will never forget when we actually got in from Alabama, we made our approach. And Bowden is right on the, the, right on the state line of Alabama. We went through this little town called Ranburn, and we crossed the line. And as soon as we got into Georgia, you're essentially right on the city limits of Bowden. The little Apache, the trailer slash camper, blew a tire. It was like symbolic. We had finished our journey, and we unhatched it, hitched it, latched it, and we left it on the side of the road, 
and we continued on to his grandmother's house. We dropped him off, even though it was his dad's car. We dropped him off at his grandmother's house, and we cruised on through the town. And this is where I'm going to leave you in today's Storyville. The town had changed. The town that we knew so well, we knew every brick, we knew every foot of sidewalk, we knew the one street light <laughs> so well, we knew every store, every person in that town, we knew every crag in their face, we knew every girl, every wrinkle in their, the, the butt of their jeans, we knew everything about that town. It had changed so much, I will never forget that. Driving to the town at night, nobody's out in the town on a weeknight at that time. And it was just us, windows down, hottest summer in memory. And we're just driving through, and it was so different. What had they done in our absence? Everything looked different. The lights looked different. The school looked different. There's only one school. The Otasco store looked different. The Ace Hardware, the Farmer's store looked different. The Water Tower looked different. Everything was different. Everybody's house was different. It was like a Twilight Zone episode. Clearly it was smaller. They'd shrunk up everything. It was altered. It looked like a town we were just driving through. It just looked like another town. It looked like Melba, Idaho. It did. It looked like just some town in Missouri, some town in Oregon. It looked like some town in Louisiana without the Spanish moss. We made our way home. I was the last one. Dropped off Jim, dropped off Steve. I took the car because I live closest to Brian. And pulled on in my driveway. My parents were surprised to see me because we were back early, hugged me. I didn't tell them about Gunga Dens. Went on into bed, and, and here's the last part I'll tell you on today's Storyville. I appreciate you guys listening. I went in, laid down on my bed, had the air conditioner going. First time I'd been in a bed in weeks and weeks. Could not sleep. My room seemed to be a sarcophagus, a coffin. It was unnaturally cool. The sound of the air conditioner sounded like a jet engine. And I ended up just taking my blanket and going out and sleeping in the backyard. That's what I had to do. I didn't even take my pillow. I just took my blanket and went out and slept under a big pecan tree in the backyard and slept like a baby for the rest of that night. That's today's story, though.